Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. In a world where we're often disconnected from nature, where our eyes are glued to screens and our feet rarely touch the grass, my guest, Carl Safina, offers a different narrative. He and his wife, Patricia, took in Alfie, a near-death baby screech owl, and what unfolded was nothing short of transformative. This is not just another story of rescue and rehabilitation. It's a tale that challenges our very understanding of the boundaries between species and questions the philosophical underpinnings of our relationship with the world around us. It's a story about the intricate tapestry of life, nature, and human experience. Our guest is someone who has not only observed the natural world, but has also profoundly changed it. Carl Safina is an award-winning ecologist and author, and he joins us to talk about his latest book, Alfie and Me. Set against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic, Alfie and Me serves as a poignant reminder that sometimes the most powerful lessons come when we least expect them, often from the most unexpected teachers. Carl Safina also takes us on an intellectual journey, critiquing the materialistic reductionism prevalent in modern biology and contrasting it with indigenous and traditional Asian worldviews. He explores the magical and philosophical and the deeply human elements that make up the two. He's a professor at Stony Brook University and a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, and his latest work is Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Carl Safina, thanks so much for joining us once again. Wow, I'm very honored by that introduction and how well you really understood what I was hoping would come across in the book. So thanks for having me. Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. Thank you for the kind words. First of all, let's begin at the beginning. Tell us how this owl came into your life. Somebody called you, somebody said, there's a problem. And so it begins. Tell us. Yeah, somebody sent me a a text message with a photo saying, do you know what kind of bird this might be? And it was, uh, I had to look carefully because this little thing looked like a wet washcloth. It was so near death and so disheveled. Um, The person who texted me was a wildlife rehabilitator. Someone had found a baby bird on his lawn and um, the rehabilitator had gone to retrieve and rescue and stabilize this little thing and um and then uh, they worked together with me for a few weeks until we thought that alfie we named this owl alfie we thought alfie would be soon flying and ready to go the rehabilitator did have to go she had to go to uh a fellowship overseas so um we had this little owl all all ready for the owl to just fly off naturally but things did not unfold quite like that there was a delay and the delay was that probably because um this this little owl alfie had been so near death the uh, feathers on her wings did not come in properly. And when she should have flown, she couldn't fly. So we had to hang on to her for a while to, uh, in the hopes that when she molted, all of her new feathers would come in properly, which they did, luckily. When this was first clear that she wasn't going to fly off by herself right away, what did you think about? What, how did you think this was going to play out? I didn't know how anything would play out. That was part of the whole 
that, that I would say that characterized the entire um the entire episode. Um I didn't know she was going to live when she was tiny. I didn't know if those feathers were going to come in properly. I didn't know anything else that was about to happen over the next um year and a half and it all just you know i just took it as it came i was disappointed and very conflicted about holding her um because i never wanted her to be in a cage but there was no choice it, either i would hold her or she would die Th those were the two choices um so we held her and talk a little bit about how the relationship the relationship that you and your wife had with, with Alfie, how that began to grow. You talk about the sense that in some ways she pulled you into her world and, and vice versa. Yeah, well, for one thing, you know, we almost never get to really understand anything about the capacities of any other creatures except maybe our, our dogs and cats, if we have dogs or cats. And, um, you know, we see a lot in them. We see personality. We see their emotional capacities. But we don't even, most of us don't even know that there are these other animals like owls living these parallel lives around us. And we certainly don't have the many hours and the close contact to see what they're capable of. So, um, you know, what we saw was there was a relationship there. This owl certainly recognized us, looked to us, often wanted to find us and be with us. And um, eventually, when springtime rolled around again, and she had her feathers and she could fly, I started to sort of tempt fate, I guess, in a way, by by opening the door, letting, letting her out. Um, she had... She had been in, in the outdoor part of our chicken coop during that period of time, but letting letting her out from there, um, letting her learn something about how to how to catch food, how to hunt, and just getting really to know a creature who obviously knew us. And then what what is a relationship? A relationship is a history between you know, two living things or two and more living things and a way of interacting. And so we definitely had developed a relationship, which was really delightful and um, very, very touching and very moving in many ways for me. And then, um, then she began her free flying life, which is part of, you know, I guess the main the main bulk of the book it covers the free-flying part of her first year and a half. And she's five years old now, and she has continued to be around. And she's had three broods of 10 chicks that have fledged uh, with two wild mates. So she's really, you know, had a really good life so far, but she continues to come and visit, which is amazing. Talk a little bit about the relationship after she was able to fly away, and as you say, she comes back, she visits, she's still very much a part of your life, how the relationship changed, how your sense of her and her sense of you, as best you could tell, changed at that point. I, I'm not sure that her sense of me changed, but her world expanded a lot because she soon had a suitor and 
I got to see that courtship in these birds is not just a phase. It was something very recognizable. They did not really trust each other or feel comfortable together at first. The trust was something that built over some time. Physical proximity, touching, courtship feeding, the, these things, um, they developed. They didn't just suddenly happen. Like it, it wasn't one phase. It was a process. And then she, um, you know, and then even the physical act of mating. She was inexperienced and awkward at first. And then um, it it came a lot quicker and there was a lot more physical contact and physical mating. Then eventually she was staying in the nest box that I, I put up in my backyard, which they started to um, you know gravitate toward. She was staying in there a lot. And I thought, well, probably she is incubating her first clutch of eggs. So some people who have taken courses in behavior might say, well, this owl was imprinted. Owl didn't know that she was an owl. Owl thought that she was a person. Uh, the owl didn't really understand what was going on, had uh, identity dysphoria. But um, actually, she knew who we were. She knew who her mate was. She was a perfectly functioning wild owl. And all of this was, you know, a constant constant revelation to me, just learning more and more about what was capable here and what she was capable of. And then just seeing a lot more about all the other goings on with the wildlife in our backyard, because I was watching the owls for about five hours a day at the uh, early and late parts of the daylight and seeing lots of other things going on as well. And, um, you know, that was part of what a lot of people said about the COVID shutdowns. It was an awful year in very many ways, but there was a silver lining for people who paid a little more attention to their gardens or their families, for that matter, their backyards, the, the birds around them, things like that. It's such an interesting notion that people made the assumption that because this relationship evolved, that somehow she had personality issues or she had definition issues that she thought she that somebody said she thought she was a person the idea that she couldn't do those things and have those kind of relationships as as an owl the assumption has to be that if she's going to have that kind of relationship she somehow must be a person or at least very compromised right but no but it didn't it that's not the way it really it really worked out at all you know we saw that she was a lot more flexible and um, a lot more aware of what was going on and that her normal instinctual urges all all worked out. But, you know, on, just like with us, on top of our instinctive urges, there is a process of learning that's necessary so that you can not only be inclined to do the things that you have to do, but then develop some skill about it too. And and uh, this is this was true with her, and true with her family, her her own you know owl family. But uh, normally, people don't ever get to see these things. People who are really good bird watchers, 
they've probably seen some owls, but they haven't gotten to know an owl, uh, an owl and her mate, watch them for hundreds of hours. We, we almost never get this opportunity. It was really something very special. Talk a little bit about knowing that this opportunity presented itself to you and committing, even within the context of the COVID shutdowns, committing that kind of time and energy and effort to this. Well, I mean, there are a couple of couple of lines here in answer to that question. One one is that I had not much better to do at that point. Um, two is watching owls is a really great thing to have the opportunity to do. I I've written a whole other array of books, and I I thought right away I I have no idea if this is going to last for a month or a year or what's going to happen here. But if something happens that I want to write about, I better start taking detailed notes right at the very beginning. I, I don't want to be in a position where a year from now I realize, hey, that's a really good story. I forgot most of the details. So I I did start taking notes right away. And I I also, I very much enjoy watching animals, waiting to see what the next really interesting thing is that they're going to do. I, I want to know who I'm with on this planet. And so, you know, some people have said, well, how, you're saying you watch them for five hours a day. How can you watch at, at the owls for five hours a day? And and a lot of the people who ask me that, they sit in cubicles in an office for eight hours a day. And I, I have no idea how you can do that. That would be impossible for me. So I didn't find it at all boring. I found it, you know, pretty endlessly interesting. And during the times when not much was happening. And um, I would just be writing up my notes or um, maybe even sitting there doing some email or some, something like that. So um, yeah, I don't remember it as, it didn't really take that much in the way of discipline, except sometimes getting up in the dark if I, if I felt like, you know, I really wasn't really quite ready to get out of bed and I had to just force myself up in the dark. But um, as things unfolded and it became more and more interesting, especially with the mate and then um, her eggs hatching and the the, the little baby owls, uh, you know, it was something very much to look forward to every morning and every evening. What did you know about these particular owls to begin with? You know, I, I knew what people who know about them knew. I knew that they are uh, a small native species. I, I know that they eat a range of things from insects to small rodents to small birds. Um, I knew that they are not migratory, that they stay on their territory all year, that they have maybe three or four young ones in their brood. Um, I knew all those facts, but I didn't know them as individuals. And, and I didn't know that they, uh, in addition to the kinds of calls that you can read that they make, that they have other calls that they make only with their most intimate contact with their mate or with their chicks or from inside their nest box. Because unless an owl is tamed, they're not going to reveal that to you. You won't be able to observe that kind of a thing. I didn't know that they had such individual personalities but I've gotten to see that not only with, with Alfie, but the difference between her first mate, who was here for two years, and her 
most recent mate who was here just this last season, um, their, their personality difference is very striking. So who would have known any of these things? We, we just know these sort of species facts as though they're all, all the individuals are exactly the same and we know some generalities about them. But what I learned from her is a lot of specifics and a lot of details. You certainly started out with an appreciation of the natural world in some ways even more than the problems inherent in the material world. How did this experience enhance that? How did it make it even stronger? Well, I was pretty far into it at the very beginning of this. My whole career has been trying to be near and understand and share experiences with wild things and wild places. And even or even before that, I, I was actually a professional ornithologist for about 10 years. I just studied birds for a living, mostly seabirds in those years. Um, so I was pretty deep into it. But a relationship and such close observations with free-flying individuals that you you get to know really pretty intimately, that was a new experience. And seeing where they, you know, they they opened a window on a wider part of the wildness of my own suburban backyard here on Long Island that, um, you know, I had inklings of, but just allowed me to see much more than I had before. Talk about what you see as the, the price we pay as a society, as individuals more specifically, in not valuing nature to, to the extent that a lot of people don't. Yeah, well, you know, even that way of posing the question, which which is the the normal way we would say it, I think indicates part of the problem because we say with nature, indicating that nature is different from us rather than our our place in the living world, our relationship with all of the other aspects of nature that are around us that we are connected to or or should be connected to, um, that we can be, that we can find richness and beauty and delight in. But instead, we think of us and nature, the two different things. Sometimes we say that we're, we're, you know, we're going to go see some nature someplace. Maybe we'll go to Yellowstone or something like that, as though nature is something you keep in a place, like cornflakes are in the cereal aisle. Nature is in Yellowstone. And that's, that's not how it is. But by seeing it that way, uh, and severing all of these relationships, we we become blind. We don't teach our children to view the world as a living place that we are part of. We we lose any sense of the history of life on Earth, and we just see trees and birds as some scenery. Um, and then we conduct a a kind of a culture that very unfortunately, I mean, we're all part of, of this culture, I'm part of the culture, but very unfortunately, this culture, to do this culture 
requires the destruction of living things and the undermining of the life support systems of the world. So we are destabilizing the climate that's sparking all of these incredible wildfires and intensifying storms. What are we doing differently? Nothing differently. We're just going on, even though now, now it's not just that the oil light is on, you know, now there's literally smoke coming out from under the hood, but we're, we have not pulled over to reassess the situation. We only know one way of doing it, and we don't know how to reassess or what else we could do in our approach to living on the, on the planet. So the disassociation and the thinking that it's us here and nature there leads to really the catastrophe that we are, um, that we are engaged in. Since you know that we we're, we have um, water tables under all the farmland are dropping precipitously, the uh, the oceans are being mined of their fish and drained of their plastic. The ice caps are melting. I mean, all of these things. I think everybody by now has heard of what's going on, and yet we don't know what else to do, really. And we don't have the resolve and we have the the political divisions that are preventing any kind of real reassessment um, and any better way of doing things. Although although what is known is there are much better ways of doing things. The, the solutions do exist. So um, it really is a matter of whether or not we care. It's also, and you, you touched on this a moment ago, the way that this current lifestyle, if, to use a nasty word, is so imprinted in us that we don't know another way. And that when you look at the, the differences, the time frames, the time horizons are so different. The speed at which we move in one part of our life is so different from what's happening in, in the more natural world. And those two things seem to run headlong against each other and make it so difficult for that imprinting to change. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But this, but the speed of change is also really um, pretty incredible. Just, uh, you know, all, all of the heat that we're experiencing, for instance, we we didn't really think that we would be feeling this. We when When people first started talking about climate change, it was thought of as something we better think of this for our children and their children. Not, not we didn't think it was going to happen in our lifetime that we would see big changes, but we we see big changes. We see little changes in, in the region here where I live, for instance. the The ocean water temperatures are unprecedentedly high in the summer. Things, some some kinds of fish and lobsters that used to live around here, they can't live here anymore. It's too warm for them. Other things from the south are moving in. Everything is, everything that was stable for generations is changing all the time now. And um, when I was when I was in high school, there was the first Earth Day before I graduated, several years before I graduated high school. There was the first Earth Day. There were plenty of big problems that people understood at that time. 
that needed we needed to change our relationship with the world and things needed to be fixed and and it was uh everybody thought that that was a good idea it was not a politically divided thing in fact the political people were falling all over themselves trying to get credit for doing something good for earth day and something something like um a quarter of everybody who lived in the country participated in some event at that time it was going to be this enormous turning point and it kind of was because all of the environmental laws that followed were part of what grew out of that whole whole movement but also since i was in high school that this continent north america has lost one third of its birds there are a billion fewer birds now than there were when i got my high school diploma and that's you know that's just one indicator of the declining life around us we used to you know in the summer you would look at the street lights there would be clouds of insects around them and bats catching insects in the street lights sometimes there are no bugs in the street lights in the summer anymore here where i live all these decades of pesticides have had a huge effect when you drove across the country you'd have to stop and clear your windshield from all the bugs that hit the windshield that doesn't happen anymore we're not nearly to the same extent so who who would ever think that we would literally watch the world being changed before our eyes in our lifetime as a result of what we do and how we live and yet what's remarkable is that while these changes are significant all the things you were just talking about that people by and large don't see it i mean yes if it's pointed out as you're doing you know that they understand but it's not something people are seeing in their everyday lives because they're not paying attention obviously right they're not they're not seeing it they're not paying attention we're not raised to pay attention or be aware or consider the other things that are struggling to live around us are you optimistic that any of this could change well i know it could change i i've seen some terrible things in the past actually get reversed some of the birds that we we're sure that were going to go extinct were saved for instance we have the solutions and are developing better solutions for you know things like energy and material recycling and things like that population growth in most of the world is not growing as fast as it was and in many many parts of the world it's stabilizing or stabilized or even starting to decline a little bit so it's possible to get through all of this uh it just doesn't have to take so much pain and so much destruction and so much dying of of the world around us as we continue to cause with the the forest that we keep cutting the pesticides we keep spraying everywhere and um and all these other things we could just change course and make it all better if we wanted to if we wanted to and how is alfie doing today uh very well you know she's she's always full of changes and surprises for several years she was roosting in the same tangle of ivy in a in a tree pretty much right outside our bedroom window and she'd be there every day since her young ones fledged this summer she found some other day roost somewhere and i don't know where she is during the day anymore 
Um, but in the evenings, if we wait outside, um, she will come by almost every night at some point during the evening before we go to bed. Uh, sometimes we go out and we call her and she appears. The other night we had a photographer over from a magazine who wanted to try to get pictures of her, which is not easy to do because she's trying to photograph a bird that may or may not show up in the dark. You need light for photos. So nighttime is challenging. So normally I don't just sit out there waiting for several hours, but we did that the other night. We just sat and waited. And as often happens when you're patient outside, eventually, suddenly we heard her calling. She started calling really loudly. She was not responding to me and my answering of her and she didn't come right in. But then we heard a second owl. So she was calling to her mate. I haven't seen her mate since the young ones left. But now that was confirmation that he is still around and he's still okay. And then eventually she came right up pretty pretty much to a, a our back door, a tree that's right outside our back door. The photographer got some photos and um, it was it was a very pleasant night. Carl Safina, the book is Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. Carl, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, I thank you so much for having me. This was a really, really good interview. You obviously read the book and asked really good questions, and um, I enjoyed that a lot. Well, thank you so much for the kind words. I appreciate it. And give our best to Alfie. You take care. Thank you. Okay, will do. Bye-bye. Bye.